Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 1st, 2018. Tick-tock, tick-tock, another month goes down. We are now officially one month down in the second quarter of 2018. Do, do, do you get that sense of time creeping up there on the back of your neck? First quarter, 2018, 2018, gone. First month of second quarter, gone. We're now into the fifth month of a 12-month year. That means two months. We're halfway through the year. If you're not working on your individual freedom and liberty, independence, and making your life what you want it to be, then time is working against you. You have those two choices. Life is not static. It's a sliding scale. You either slide forward or you slide backwards. The choice is yours. Just a convenient time for a reminder on that. What do we got on deck for you today? It is the first Tuesday of the month, so I know what you're thinking. Stephen Harris, Bug Out Trailer, show number six. Nope. Um, with coming back from being gone and all, I just can't get two interviews done in one week. So kind of pushing that since the first Tuesday was the first day. It's time for like a, a relaxed show, something right in my wheelhouse that I can kind of do for you. And something on my mind from a lot of different things that have gone on in the past about three or four weeks and dealing with different people and different dogs, including my own. We're going to do a show today called Understanding the Canine Brain. And while this show has to do with training dogs, it is not a show itself on training dogs. It's more about understanding how dogs think and what they need from human beings to be able to do the things that we want them to do and to refrain from doing the things that we do not want them to do. We call this training. I prefer to think of it more as understanding the dog's innate behaviors and encouraging that what we want and discouraging that what we do not. So that which we want overpowers that which we do not. Kind of sounds like permaculture for pets, doesn't it? And in some ways it is. It's not perfect, But I think we'll have a good, enjoyable show today. We'll be talking about canine pack structure and how it's not a direct corollary to domestic dogs, but what we can learn from it. We're going to talk about how domestic dogs differ from, say, a wolf that was raised from a puppy and it was fully tamed. We're going to talk about how every dog can be dangerous, and we need to understand that. We're going to understand today why your dog absolutely needs you to be in charge for your dog to even be happy. And we're going to talk about what trainers mean when they say something like calm, assertive energy. And I'm going to give you a whole list of my rules that I enforce on myself when it comes to training, correcting, working with dogs. If I'm interacting with dogs, these are rules that I follow that I've set in my own life. And we'll do all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, BulkAmmo.com. Gun, no ammo, club. Get it? That's how it works. The gun is an incredible piece of machinery. It's an incredible tool built by man to empower man, to empower man to defend himself, to empower man to enjoy himself, to empower man to put food on the table. But without that smallest itty-bitty thing, in fishing we would call it the terminal tackle, that slug, that bullet that comes out the end of the barrel, 
which has to be, you know, plugged into what we call a cartridge with some gunpowder behind it going bang, what the hell good is a gun? Maybe you could sell it for some money or barter it or something, but from a standpoint of doing its job, it needs ammo. And it needs lots of ammo because, well, you got to practice so that you're good at your craft. And whenever the gun grabbers go nuts, of course, the first thing that dries up isn't the guns themselves, magazines and ammunition. So get on over to BulkAmmo.com today. Make sure you're stocked up on the ammo that fits the guns that you have. So your gun cabinet, your gun safe, your gun room, your gun whatever it is, remains a gun room or a gun safe, not a club room or a club safe. Just doesn't sound as good, does it? Nope, and it won't either. BulkAmmo.com is where I get my ammo is where you should get yours too. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. This magazine comes from the folks that originally brought us Backwoods Home. It's the evolution of that publication into something more in line with the fact that we are now in the year 2018. Lots of great information, stuff that you can actually put into practice in your own life, things that you can do to make your life more free, independent, and liberty-oriented from a standpoint of being, well, self-reliant. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. And remember, they do offer a discount for members of the MSB. Before I get into my main topic today, we have a Stephen Harris-approved year. Almost. One, two, three. We'll have to wait to get to one, two, three, four. But we have the year 123 for our history segment. We have Peace on the Parthian Front, contributed by David Verne at tspwiki.com. During his time in Africa, Hadrian has to rush to the Parthian border. The former Parthian king, Orsos, has retaken and solidified his rule of the Parthian throne, and Hadrian withdrew from, after Hadrian withdrew from the territories, Trajan conquered. Orsos was now threatening war, and Hawkish Senate was demanding that Hadrian go to war and put the Parthians in their place. Hadrian, however, was aware that Trajan's past success had happened while the Parthians were dealing with several rebellions in a civil war. He decided to try something different this time. Hadrian met with Orsos on the Euphrates River, and after some time they came to an agreement. The Euphrates River would be the permanent border between the two empires. My take by David Verne. Very often countries have gone to war after communications break down between them. When this happens, a minor incident or accident can blow up into full-scale war. But if two countries sit down and have a rational discussion, they often find that peace can exist. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. and Soviet Union established a hotline so the country's leaders could communicate with each other and talk before a misunderstanding caused a nuclear war. The current negotiations between the U.S. and the two Koreas is another good example of this. As long as North Korea is talking, it means they're not going to war in the near future. Okay, I'm going to tell you this flat out. North Korea will never go to war with South Korea and the United States, period. Why? We talked about this yesterday. People do what's in their best interest. North Korea cannot win that war, so North Korea will not initiate a war with South Korea while we're involved at the level that we're involved with in 2018. Things could change. China could become, you know, uh, adversarial to the U.S. and join Korea, and then maybe you have a war because then both sides think they have a chance at winning. Nations do not go to war unless they think they can win. That's why, in general, not always, but in general, the side that attacks is the side that wins. There's more to it than that, like uh, first mover advantage and such. But generally, the side that's superior is the one that does the invasion. 
when two kids on the street are very well matched and both of them are going to get very bloodied up uh, and there's nothing really at stake that matters, they're a lot less likely to fight. You know, that's the United States and Soviet Union during the Cold War. Both of them were really strong. Both of them knew they really had nothing really to gain if we ever went to war. And all the posturing was for the avoidance of war. That's what uh, David Verne's take makes me think of. However, there's more here that, that makes me think of something. I just find it a little, little tagline there at the end that most people would skate right over and not think about. It says, They came to an agreement that the Euphrates River would be the permanent border between the two empires. Have you ever wondered why so many countries uh, or empires or regions are separated with a natural boundary of a river? Most people would think, well, it's just convenient. The actual answer to that is because the Dagon River is so important. A waterway is so Dagon important. If we share that river as a boundary, we have a natural insulation, especially if it's a big river, but we both get to use it. You see? That's why that's done so often. And that shows that human beings are inherently cooperative as long as one side doesn't feel taken advantage of by the other. And that's what Rome is discovering in its evolution of empire. That it is far better to make friends of your enemies, to make them into trading partners, and have them contribute to your empire in different ways than to try to bring everything into the empire. In other words, the empire has found its limits, and unfortunately for Rome, that lesson won't hold forever. Um, my thoughts by Jack Spirico. Next up, let's go ahead and get into this and start talking about today's, uh, today's topic, which is dogs and understanding the canine brain. Um, I've done shows on training dogs before. Likely the best one I ever did was... Well, it was episode 1797, Training Dogs to Fit in on the Homestead. It was probably the best one I ever did, and it was right around two years ago. It's uh, 11 months almost to the day today, uh, one year, 11 months almost to the day today that I did that show. And, and I, I'm going to be in that vein today, but not really about the training. So we're not going to be talking about how to train a command and what commands to train and why those are important. You can go back and listen to that show. There's a link in today's show notes. What I really want to do is help you understand dogs so that you're a better trainer and companion to your dog and to other dogs when you come into contact with them. I want to say as well today, I don't consider myself to be a dog professional, a dog psychologist, a dogologist, whatever the hell that is, or a dog savant. I do consider myself to be a dog person, or in my wife's misspoken term one time, a dog animal. Yeah, she really did say that once. She said, he's a dog animal. And there's, there's actually some truth in that because we are, one way or another, an animal species as human beings. I know some people tend to, often for religious reasons, see us apart from the animal kingdom. But even if you believe, I don't care what theology you believe in, we are an animal species by any way that science would measure that, even if we're a higher species, which I believe we are. Even if we have a nobler purpose, which maybe we do. Even if we are set apart by a great creator, we're still an animal species. We, we have fur. We have skin. We're warm-blooded. We have four upper quadruped, basically. We're a biped that we walk on two feet, but in the end... We have these four limbs, 
we're an animal. I mean, it's either animal, vegetable, or mineral, and we're not mineral or vegetable. So uh, that's what I mean by that. And that means we have some of our wavelengths are similar to animals. That's why we have, I believe that human beings have a desire to be involved with animals. Some people are not animal people. I get that. But in general, people, people keep pets. What else keeps a pet? You know, think about it. Like, you don't have a lion going, you know what? I think I'll, I'll, I'll keep some of these gazelles as pets and I'll eat some of the other ones. You see what I'm saying? Like, we, we actually want to be involved with animals because we know that there is a connection there. But I don't consider myself to be a definitive expert on this subject. And I'm going to explain today at some point why any dog can be dangerous and you need to understand the limitations of yourself your dog, etc. Some of the things I may do in my training and correction of animals may not be a good idea for you to do. So I don't want you to just do what I say. I want you to, to back it into your life, your limitations, your reality. Um, but what I mean by saying I'm a dog person is I am a person that people would say has a, you know, quote, way with dogs, unquote. Um, dogs that won't listen to others will often listen to me almost instantly. Uh, dogs that don't trust strangers will trust me fairly quickly, sometimes instantly. This is something people consider a gift, like, oh, he's one of those special dog people. But I really just think it's an understanding. In short, I know how dogs think, so unless the dog is just an asshole dog, and trust me, he will say there's no bad dog. There's asshole dogs, right? There's asshole people. Now, some people are assholes because other people made them into assholes, and some people are just innately assholes. Some dogs are assholes because of the way they were treated and trained, and some dogs are innately assholes. Now, usually that dog is not the dog that goes out and bites a bunch of people. He's just kind of an asshole. My dog, Blackie, as much as we loved him and as well as we trained him, was an asshole dog. Now, he was a, he was a minor asshole. I, hey, I'm an asshole, right? You guys know that. You guys listen to this show, and you know that I can be an asshole at times. Blackie was a bit of an asshole. And if a dog is enough of an asshole, it makes a lot of this stuff very, very difficult. Most dogs aren't. You know, Most dogs are far less asshole than most people are. Uh, but I, I want to kind of quell that notion, too, that all dogs can do all things, because they can't. Um, but since I know how dogs do think, unless we have that asshole dog, or someone has really ruined the dog... Or if the dog is feral or practically feral, I can generally instantly form a bond with it. If somebody has a dog that just attacks people, it's going to bite me, just like it's going to bite you. If there's a dog that's wild, it might take me just as long as anybody else to get that dog to take food from my hand and not be directly dangerous to me. But if that dog in general is a dog that people can walk up to and pet, I can generally walk up to that dog who someone says won't even sit down, and in an hour I'll have that dog sitting staying, laying down. But it's not because I have a gift. No more so than you can fix a truck because somebody taught you how to change spark plugs and wires uh, or, or something like that. It's, it's a skill set. But there is an innate characteristics within human beings, just like there's innate characteristics within dogs. And if your innate persona is to be what you need to be for a dog, it will be easier for you. Anybody can learn to play a guitar, but there's some people that can almost instantly learn to play a guitar. It's not because they're special, it's because their innate characteristics are 
slanted such that it's easier for them. They have a better sense of rhythm or their fingers are structured in a way that makes it easier for them to push on the frets. So I don't want to like make it like if you can't do this instantly, you're wrong type of thing. My B mentor, Jason, can take bees that are clumping on the outside of a beehive and pick them up in handfuls and set them on the hive to make sure it's just bees cooling off and it's not a swarm, make sure there's not a queen in there they're getting ready to leave and not get stung. His heart slows down a little bit. His respiration slows down a little bit. And he's completely stress-free and at peace and almost a, a meditative state when he does that. Anybody can do that, but the thought of 60,000 stinging insects causes our heart to rise. And for some people, the fact that that dog has those big teeth causes our heart to rise. The fact that we're afraid the dog might run away, bite somebody else, bite another dog, even though we're not afraid it'll do it to us, causes our heart rate to rise. That dog can hear that heart rate as well as you could if you put a stethoscope on and put it up to a person's chest. So that dog hears your heart go from boom, 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 to boom, 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 boom. He knows something's up. He doesn't know what. But everything in his dog brain says, hey, Something's up. So a lot of this stuff is things you have to work out if you're not generally a calm, assertive, confident person. That's what makes me a dog person. I am generally calm. I know Jack goes on some serious rants. You know, I get pissed off, I do. And some of it is a little bit of entertainment for you guys behind the microphone, right? Um, I know my job well, just like dogs that are trained right know their dogs, their jobs well. But in general, I'm pretty confident. And I'm pretty calm, and I know what I know. And when I ask someone to do something or ask a dog to do something, I expect that it will be done. And a lot of people want to make it more complicated, but it's not. It really is that simple. So what I want to start with today is, is, is like an understanding of something that people throw around, but yet I think they take it too literally, and they don't understand where it, it bifurcates into something that's not exactly the same. And that's talking about being pack leader, right? You want to be the alpha in your dog pack. You're in charge. That's true. And we talk about it as a pack, like a wolf pack. Or coyotes will occasionally pack up. African wild dogs will pack up. Dingoes will pack up. And so we see the dog as a corollary to the wolf pack. But it's not the same. And our domestic dogs have been with humans so long that genetically those predispositions that made a dog fit with humans have been over and over and over again bred to be more in common with humans than wolves or dingoes or African wild dogs. Your dog is more like you than he is like a wolf in many, not all ways. Here's a perfect example of this. So, Scientists, I watched this documentary, wanted to see, well, what is the real difference? So they took dogs that were big, strong dogs that would be analogous, but not necessarily genetically de derived from uh, wolves, and that was German Shepherds. And they raised a group of puppies, German Shepherd puppies, around people with certain commands as a pack. So there was not just multiple people, but multiple dogs. They raised the wolves the same way. Talking about from the time that pup's old enough to be picked up and held and cuddled, the dogs were cuddled, the wolves were cuddled. They were raised in a very, very similar environment. They were fed the same. 
They were trained. The wolves would even obey certain commands. But it was very, very difficult, even with all that being the same, to get a wolf to understand that when a human points, simply to look where the human pointed. So if I'm sitting with my dogs and I go, Charlie, look, and I point, his head goes right where my finger is. It's a natural thing for a dog to do because a dog has been part of humanity for over 10,000 years. We have had this relationship with dogs. The wolf, I, I don't feel like looking over there. I don't smell or see or hear anything over in that general direction. So I'm looking at you like, where's my meat? Where are you going to feed me, dude? There's, see, and if there's that much of a difference, then there's a significant difference between your dog and a wolf. I don't care how many commercials that try to sell you, you know, wild brand dog food or whatever that show a wolf turning into your Cocker Spaniel. Your Cocker Spaniel's not a wolf. It doesn't think like a wolf in many ways. It does think like a wolf in many other ways. There are things that are still bonded back. So before I go forward with why this all matters, I want to stop for a moment and talk about how every dog is, quote, dangerous, unquote. I want you to think about this. Okay, I have a 150-pound German Shepherd. Obviously, if I tell you if this dog turns on you, he could be dangerous, you're like, well, duh. I have a 100-pound pit bull mix. I don't really need to explain to you how this dog could be dangerous. How about my 50-pound uh, uh, husky mix, Lucy? She's pretty beta. Uh, she was so beta that when we first got her, she was what you call a submissive urinator. You touch her, she would pee to signify I'm no threat to you. She only weighs about 50 pounds. Is that dog dangerous? I would submit to you that none of my dogs are dangerous. If you come here as a visitor and you're welcomed and you're sitting in my home, all three of them will kiss you and lick you and want to be pet. But all three of them have the potential for danger. My 50-pound little Lucy could rip your arm to the bone if she decided to. The odds that she will are infinitesimally low. It's probably more likely that a meteor will come through my roof and hit me in the head in the middle of a broadcast, and somebody will put out the final broadcast, and you'll hear me go, it's more likely than a meteor, and that you'll hear a voice come on and go, well... I don't know how, but he called that one too. I mean, that's more likely than her doing it. But it is possible. Let's take it down. Let's take it down a 15-pound chihuahua. What do you think a 15-pound chihuahua that goes wolf, that goes nuts and decides for one reason or another I have to fight for my life could do to your hands, your arm, your face, your neck? Every dog has the potential to be dangerous. And I say this for a couple reasons. One, you take responsibility for an animal like this. You take responsibility for potential danger that they represent to other people and to other animals. Two, there are things I do, like take my 100-pound pit bull when he gets too aggressive, grab him by the neck and put him to the ground into a submissive state. If you do not have the confidence, the relationships, etc., and you do that with a dog like him, you're very likely to pull back a bloody nub for an arm. Just because I do something doesn't mean it's universal and should be done somewhere else. Just because you see somebody do something on TV, even if they are a professional, doesn't mean it applies across the board. And that person probably knows when it does and does not apply. There's a guy that I know from Facebook that got tore up by one of his dogs. 
He basically has dogs that act as livestock guardian dogs, and they're in a pack. The dogs routinely fight to determine who the alpha is, including drawing blood from each other at times. This is not how I will run a pack of dogs. Absolutely not. But that is what he does. He has a great relationship with his dogs. He never had a problem with his dogs. Dogs never been a person. He was out. The dog that had become the new alpha was maybe a little insecure with his new alphaness. Something happened where he lowered his head to the dog. The dog took that the wrong way. And this dog that he raised from a pup came at him, bit him all up in the head. He had multiple stitches, head, neck, and arms from this dog. Any dog can be dangerous. This is why I believe that training is so critical and relationships with dogs are so critical. And some of the rules that I'm going to give you today are so important and that techniques be applied at your level of ability, your confidence, and within the dog's world. You can hold down a four-pound puppy, okay? You can use that submission control. If you have the opportunity to, you will probably be able to use it for the rest of your life, if it's even necessary. If you get a dog in off the street that you don't know, that weighs 75 pounds, who's not into that shit, and you try it, you may end up missing fingers. Even the dog that you were able to pet, even a dog that never showed any aggression, technique has to be applied appropriately in the right situations, in the right way, because any dog is flailing teeth that can do more damage than you can imagine. Use caution and respect, not fear. Never approach the animals with fear. So that's my disclaimer for today. Now, what I want to say next, though, is your dog needs you to be in charge for your dog to be happy. The dog views us like God. The picture for today's episode and on the on the uh, blog entry is a picture of a dog and a cat. It says how dogs think. You love me. You pet me. You feed me. You must be God. And then it says there's a cat, and the cat says how cats think. You love me. You pet me. You feed me. I must be God. We all know cats have a certain amount of arrogance. That might be a bit too much, but I thought it was funny. But it makes my point. To the dog... You are the pack leader. And people often say that dogs do not view us as humans. They view us as big dogs in control. This is not true. This is not true. Dogs don't really view themselves as small humans either. Dogs know humans and dogs are different. They're not the smartest animal in the world. I would, I would tell you that the brain of a dolphin is probably far superior than the brain of a German shepherd. But they can look and see, that's a dog, that's a person. They know the difference. But they have been with us so long that we are their pack leader as that different thing. A human, whatever it is to a dog. And they rely on that human for food alone. This is huge. In that wild canine pack, that alpha will have its way with food and decide when the other animals eat. We give food freely, but we control access. You have to understand how huge that is. The dog knows innately. It's not just I like treats and nummies. I need to eat. This, this thing provides for me so I can eat. When they're scared or upset, we comfort them. We pet them and we offer them affection. In ways that dogs tend not to do with other dogs. If you ever notice, cats will give each other affection once they form a bond. 
like my two cats. They'll lay with each other. They'll cuddle with each other. They'll lick each other. Occasionally, you'll see pack behavior between my dogs. Want to lick the other dog, but they don't cuddle. But they cuddle up to you. You are different from anything else in their world, and they need you to be in charge. I want you to think about it like this. Let's say that you um, you went on a journey to find your Yoda, your Luke Skywalker, and you finally get to Dagobah. You crash your starship, and you see this little green dude come out, and he tells you he's Yoda, and you think, well, you know, looks kind of funny, but since Obi-Wan sent me here, he must know what he's doing. And he says, yes, finally, after arguing with you a bit, he'll train you in the ways of whatever, the force or the tennis ball if you're a dog. And then when you start asking him questions, he goes, you know, kid, I, I really don't know. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to beat Vader or not. He might kill you. You'll probably turn. I don't know. Maybe it'll be okay. Maybe it won't. And remember, your dog doesn't have the human intellect to work out like, okay, this guy's an idiot. I'll go find a new Yoda. So when you're not definitive, your dog's like, what the hell? He's supposed to be Yoda, and he doesn't know how a lightsaber works. And yeah, it's just an analogy, but it's an accurate one. That dog needs you to be definitive. Think about another analogy so you can really get this because it's so important. We're in a room, and there's fire burning all around us. And I'm wearing a fire, fireman's gear, and I've just showed up. You don't know how I got there. And I say, one of those doors is the way to safety. The other door is full of flames, and if you go through, you're going to die. What are you looking for me to say next? Go out that door. That one. Not Now, choose your door. When you as a human are in the situation where you know you're dependent on somebody else, you want definitive. I'll give you one more so you can really get this. You're going to go in for surgery. Life-threatening brain surgery. Guy comes out like the doctor performed his surgery on my, on my wife and says, you know what, I know this is a little bit scary, but I'm very good at this. I do this all the time. The actual risk of death is very low. You're safer on my operating table than you are on the medication you've been taking for the last nine years. Let's do this. What if you walked in and said, eh, I don't know. Um, we could go in from the left side or the right side. Uh, you know, uh, you're probably more likely to die this way, but this way is more likely to give you... Uh, hold on, let me ask my buddy. Hey, Joe. Joe's like pushing a mop. Joe, you remember the, when I did that other surgery and Joe's like, hold on, let me think. Yeah, yeah, I remember when you did that. Well, did I go in from the left or the right? You went in from the left. It was definitely the left. All right, I'm going to go through the left. It'll be all right, I think. How do you feel? Can you be happy? You see what I'm saying? The dog expects definitiveness. The dog expects leadership. And anything else is unacceptable to the dog. I don't know what to do now. And when dogs don't know what to do, all the bad behaviors come up. The whining, the whimpering, the separation anxiety disorder, the eating of the door, the digging of the hole, the chewing of everything, the jumping, the constant you know, vocalizations, whatever. All of that comes from, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure. And when the dog is doing something you don't like and you start yelling at the dog instead of taking basic, calm, assertive correction, the dog hears, blah, 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 blah. He doesn't hear, hey, stop doing what you're doing, dog. 
hears blah, 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 and he hears your heartbeat go up, and he smells your sweat start to pour, even if you don't think it is. He, he literally feels your hair going up on your arm as you're worried about what he's doing, and you're screaming at him. And he doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to do. Does that mean I'm doing it wrong? Does that mean I need to do it faster? Does that mean I need to be more aggressive or less aggressive? I don't know what to do. But with definitive calm energy, and usually just a hand motion, oh, that means stop. I'll stop and see what happens next. I trust. And if you've built that relationship, that's what you get. And that goes into the calm, assertive energy. And what I want to talk about is what trainers mean when they say calm, assertive energy. Some people think this is like some sort of mystical force that dogs can feel and humans can learn to put off. It almost is, but it's not. It's all the things I just said. That dog hears your respiration. His sense of smell is so high that when your stress levels change, the scent of your breath changes, and he can smell it across the room. He can hear your heartbeat. He can hear the speed of your respiration. He can smell the chemicals that come off your body. He knows you didn't take a bath. He knows you did take a bath and use the other shampoo. He won't articulate it that way, but he notices the difference. So calm, assertive energy means being able to be in the state of peace. If you're in a state of peace, your dog will be in a state of peace. He's not upset. I don't need to be upset. He's not upset. He said, stop. Stop means stop. He's not confused. She's not confused. She knows what she wants from me. Therefore, I'll comply. Now, this assumes the dog actually has commands, as trained, and, and knows what to do when you ask them to. And something's not radically wrong. You know, if 75 chickens come over your fence, and your dog's never been trained around chickens, it's probably going to kill some chickens, no matter how well trained otherwise, before you get control of it. So you have to learn that level of control and what you really have it. And what I want to do now is I want to go into my rules when training, correcting, and working with dogs. Before I do that, though, I want to reinforce everything I did. I found this thing a while ago, and it really reinforces this concept of how dogs view us. And there's some anamorphism in it. Anamorphism is when we assign human characteristics to animals, for those who maybe have not heard the term before. But overall, it's true. It's reality. And it's the concept of how dogs view us. The dogs kind of view us as... 500, you know, elves that live 500 years as immortals. And I'll tell you, if you're listening to this and you're not where you can get to your dog, by the time it's over, you're going to want to go home and pet your dog and rub its belly, and you, you probably should. But it does drive home the need that a dog has for its human to be in charge and to be trustworthy and to not break trust. Here you go. In the dog world... Humans are elves that routinely live to be 500 plus years old. They live so long, but the good ones still bond with us for our entire lives. These immortals are so kind, we must be good friends to them. Now that I am old, the fur around my muzzle is gray, and my joints ache when we walk together. Yet she remains unchanged, her hair still glossy, her skin still fresh, her steps still sprightly. Time doesn't touch her, and yet I love her still. For generations, he has guarded over my family. Since the days of my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he has kept us safe. 
for so long we thought him immortal, but now I see differently. For just as my fur grows gray and my joints grow stiff, so too do his. He did not take in my children, but gave them away to his own. I will be the last that he cares for. My only hope is that I am able to last until his final moments. The death of one of his kind is so rare. The ending of a life so long is such a tragedy. He has seen so much. He knows so much. I know he takes comfort in my presence. I only wish that I will be able to give him this comfort until the end. So that takes it to another level, doesn't it? And I have a link to the, where that's written, and I, I kind of challenge some of you to read it out loud without having your voice crack. When you think about your animals and your dogs that you've, you've had in your lives over the years, because they are that dedicated. I've often said that I prefer most dogs to most people. And uh, some people seem a little taken aback by that or a little offended by that. And I'm thinking, well, when I find a human as dedicated to me as what I just read to you, maybe I'll change my mind about that. Because that's how dedicated dogs are. When you form that right relationship, that dog will put you above everything and it will give its all for you. If it means laying down its life or risking itself, it'll do it. Because that's what it, that's what everything in it tells it to do. So, When we have something that's sacred with an animal, then we don't break that trust. And I think, you know, when I talk about being a dog person, if you believe that, I believe that dogs can feel on some level. Again, the dog is not a human. It cannot articulate things in a human voice. A smart dog will have a vocabulary of about 500 words. That's like an Einstein dog. So there's no way they could connect enough of the different ideas together to rationally think the way that we do. But I believe that energy that we put off, that vibe that we put off, says this human is trustworthy. This human will be there for me too. This human has my back, so I have his or hers. And then that dog stays calm and it doesn't get upset because another person comes around. And you know how many people know the girlfriend that they have that had the dog that when they try to sit with the girlfriend, the dog bites them? That's a mentally damaged dog by a mentally damaged human that didn't train the dog right. That's not the dog wasn't born that way, right? It's not cute. It's that that dog has insecurity because it doesn't feel that it's human. Is there for it regardless of what happens. And if you follow these rules, especially if you get the opportunity, and dare I say the privilege of working with a dog from the time it's a pup. Because I've had very few times where I've actually gotten it because I'm so willing to rescue dogs. Most dogs that I've brought in, 18 months to two years old when we do it. And it's more difficult and it takes more time because that dog has not had that clear, defined boundary going forward. But here's some of my rules. My first rule, and I believe this is the most important rule of training dogs, period. No correction absent a connection. Okay? I mean, you could tattoo that in your brain. If you want to be good with dogs, you don't correct a dog unless the dog can make the connection to what they're being corrected for. Otherwise, all I know is you're angry and they don't know why. And we all slip because we're human beings. We get emotional. We're dealing with trying to train a behavior out of Lucy right now. She's a Siberian Husky. She has an intrinsic characteristic known as digging. She's always going to be a digger. We have a great, beautiful new garden I put in for Dorothy for her flowers. Lucy's digging holes in it. It also smells like chicken poop because I fertilized it. It's soft, it's easy to dig. Lucy wants to dig. Okay? We need to correct this, and we will. Okay? 
but only when there's a connection. So last night, Dorothy opened the door. And she said, Lucy, you're a bad dog. Yelled. Lucy ran and hid under the bed. There's no connection. That's a mistake. The dog does not know why you're upset. She knows that you're upset. The quicker the correction to the behavior, the more effective it will be. But even in that instance, there's an opportunity to be calm and call the dog over and then say, no, that's all it takes. No, don't do this. And the dog will sulk. Now, you got to understand something very, very important here. In that pack behavior, the corollary that still exists, and you see it in dynamics where people have multiple dogs, and the one dog is clearly the alpha, and if they ever snap on each other, if the other dog lowers its ears and gives up, it stops. It stops. I have said, don't do that. The other dog has said, I'm not going to fight back. That means I'll try not to do that again. Quit. The dog doesn't have the attention span to continue that as a five-minute conversation like you give your eight-year-old child about why what they did was wrong. The dog has acknowledged the behavior. With a connection, we go back to normal. Because the pack leader has spoken. Pack leader expects it won't be done again. Correction will come again if it happens again. And this is in all things. Now, the ideal situation is going to be, and I hope that it happens, I get to catch her beginning the behavior. Because then the connection is, and the tighter the connection, the more effective the correction. But if you can't form the connection, don't bother. That dog doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. When my wife was angry and used her name, she knew, shit, one of the, one of the human elves is pissed at me. I'm getting the hell out of here. And then you got apprehension, and you start to breach trust a little bit because they're just angry for no reason. I don't understand. Canine brain. Next, believe the dog will do as you want at all times. This does not mean the dog is going to do what you want all the time. You believe it. You expect it. Let's, let's talk about a way that this plays out in the negative and people don't see how simple it is to make the switch. The dog gets aggressive. So what does the owner do when the dog is aggressive? You reach down and grab the dog handle. Let's call it a collar. We twist it a little bit so the dog can't slip the collar. Our arm tightens up. No! Stop! And what are we thinking in our head? This dog's going to bite whatever it's going at. What are you expecting the dog to do? Continue to pull and try to bite. What does the dog do? It continues to pull and tries to bite. Why? Because it's what you expect it to do. Even though you don't want it to do it, You're expecting it. So what happens? Your respiration goes up. Your heart rate goes up. Your pheromones go up. Your fear. Now, you're not afraid of your dog. You're afraid of what your dog's going to do. Your dog doesn't sense that. Your dog senses fear. My elf is grabbing me tightly and is scared. And this thing that I already thought was dangerous or I wouldn't have been this way in the first place is still here. It's not going away. I must defend my elf. However, we reach down and gently grab the collar. Now, understand, if the dog's going and you've got to pull the dog back, this is a different scenario. But if you have the opportunity to gently correct the animal, it's easy. Sit. It's that simple. Sit. 
If you're able to step in front of the dog and you have a command for sit, like a fist and down or an open hand and down, and you don't even speak, in that situation it's more powerful. My elf stepped between me and this thing that I thought was a threat, turned its back to it, doesn't give a shit about it, gave me a command that I know instinctually means relax. In fact, whenever I see that hand come up and I sit, I usually get pet. Since I trust my elf, there's no danger. Things must be okay. And I've done this with dogs that don't even know who I am. Where they're coming and they're aggressive. And just a hand. And an expectation. You're going to sit. Now, if that dog's going to eat me, it's different. But if it's just doing something it's not supposed to be doing, boom. Now, if that dog will do that for me and I don't even know the dog, don't you think your dog will do it for you if you'll get into that mindset? Next thing, on your training. Let's say you're training a dog to shake hands. I was working with a dog recently in front of its owner, and I was teaching it to shake. I wasn't going to have enough time to get the dog to do it, but I just, you demonstrate, right? That's how you teach, you demonstrate, you do. So I had a little bit of food. I take the dog, I said paw, and I grab the dog's paw, and I shook the dog's paw, put the dog down, and gave it food. And I just did it like five times in a row until I ran out of nummies for the dog. And the person says, is that how you teach a dog how to, how to shake? Yeah. Well, all you got to do is keep doing that. But you'll get to a point where that dog is done. I'm not interested in this game anymore. Now, they might still be interested in the food, but you can tell that they're just like, oh, well, if I sit here and let him do whatever he's doing or she's doing, I'll keep getting fed. When they stop kind of acknowledging, hey, you're picking my foot up, you know, and there's a point where you stop picking the foot up. And with most dogs, what I found is in about three or four sessions of doing that for teaching that give me your paw, You'll go paw or shake or put your hand out, whatever your command is you choose for your dog. And the dog's paw just goes up. And it's like when that dog does that the first time, it's like a young Tom turkey poult. The first time they go into a posture, you know, where they put their wings out and they strut, they don't even know why they're doing it. Like their instinct just kicks in and boom. And you almost see them look around like, well, that was weird. And they puff back down like, why did I do that? And a dog will do that. And when that dog does that, you feed them and you, you love them up. I like that. I'll do it again. That's really easy to get them to give you the other paw. Now, what have you done? Well, you taught the dog to do a trick so they can show off of your friends. No, you've taught the dog to give you his paw. You've given it a behavior that you can command. Like when the dog has something wrong with its foot, now you can touch its foot. Now you can now you can render the dog aid. You've disassociated because most dogs don't like their feet touched. If you have a pup, touch their feet constantly. Constantly. While giving them affection, while feeding them. To where it's like, that's what humans do. They touch your feet. It's okay. I trust my human. I trust my elf. But you, you've, you've given them a behavior. And every time we add a behavior to what a dog can do on command, we reinforce the relationship that you're in charge. And again, what does the dog want more than anything else? It wants its elf to be Yoda. It wants you to have the answers. It needs you to have the answers because there is no pack leader in your group of dogs. There is an alpha. If you have four or five dogs, you have one that is the dominant dog. But they are not the pack leader. You are. Remember, they're not wolves anymore. Your dogs shouldn't be constantly fighting with each other the way a wolf pack does for that alpha to stay the alpha. As soon as that alpha becomes weak, he doesn't get overtaken. Our pack dynamic here, 
We have Max, the old German shepherd. He raised Charlie. Raised him. He was part of his training. Max was 150 pounds when Charlie was 12. Charlie could tear that German shepherd to shreds at this point. He's old and he's slow. Charlie is in his absolute prime. There's never a problem. And it's kind of like when you get old and you, you get grown up and tough and you think you could beat your old man's ass, you don't go do it because you got respect. Wolves don't do that. Dogs, properly trained in a household, do that. Hey, he's the old man. So Max might growl when he does something, when Charlie does something Max doesn't want. If Lucy does that, she's getting her ears pinned back. You're not the old man. You don't get to do that. This is a form of etiquette. Wolves don't have etiquette. Dogs have etiquette. But it's because they're trained by human beings and they take on our characteristics. Next, reward. I talked about using food as a reward. It's a great reward, but I try to do about a 5 to 1 ratio minimum, and I don't keep track of it, but just in my head, with the reward for good behavior is affection. Five times to every one time there's a treat. You know, what have you. And then whenever you're given a treat, once the dog learns behaviors, ask for one of the behaviors, even if it's just sit down. It reinforces that. Uh, next, there's some exceptions here. But in general, my view is canine teeth do not touch human flesh. If I offer my dog uh, a piece of food and their, their tooth just, just barely, with no harm whatsoever, touches my finger, I would all usually say to them, because they know what it means from time and training, what did you do? And the ears go down. And I'll pet them. Okay, we're done. The pack leader gave correction. You accepted it. We're done. We're not having a discussion about it. And if there's anything else available, I'll give them another piece. Well, you're rewarding poor behavior. No, I'm rewarding good behavior. I made a correction. The dog acknowledged the correction. I'm giving them another piece. You know what they're going to do now? What my dogs do when this occasionally happens? Because it's always a mistake. They never mean to do it. But I want to keep them on their best behavior. They take that thing like they're taking a wire out of a bomb that will go off if they do it wrong. The gentlest, because they want to demonstrate to me, look, I know what to do. I didn't mean that. I got excited, or I just didn't even notice that your finger was there. Hey, I never bit you in the first place. I didn't mean it. Let me show you. And then they get more affection. I acknowledge that you acknowledge, right? This is simple. This is, this is how dogs' minds work. Now, I know, now, the dog feels like, okay, everything's good. The last thing that happened is where the dog's head is, unless what happened was severely traumatic. And it takes severe trauma to make a dog live in the past. These dogs that have a lot of work to be done just to get them out of their shell, they were severely abused or severely neglected. Little things that happen here and there, the dog is past it the next minute as long as it's immediately corrected. Um, next, oh, the exceptions. Puppies are going to bite. They're going to, they're going to, and what I do generally with a pup, when they start chewing on your hands and all, I stick my finger right down their throat and say no. They get a gag reflex. As soon as they get a gag reflex and I say no and they hurt it, I let go. They come back again, I'll do it again and again and again. And you, you know, there's things you hold a five-year-old two that you don't hold at one-year-old two. Your eight-month-old puppy is not going to be able to intellectually comprehend what your two-year-old dog will. Don't expect it. Then, I will sometimes play with my dogs where they might 
like get their paws going like boxing and they might even you know kind of bite at you a little bit and as long as it's gentle I'll let it go and as long as I can say stop and they stop I'll let it go and I believe this is important because it teaches them control and they need that I'm again remember I'm not saying to do everything I do and any dog can be dangerous but I believe with my methods and my animals and my level of confidence and what I'm doing that it teaches them control because dogs need to understand that human flesh is more tender than dog flesh. I've seen two large dogs grab each other by the neck, shake each other around, get broken up, and nobody bleeds. And if that dog grabs your arm the way I grabbed that other dog, it would tear flesh from your arm. Dogs have thick, thick skin and fur. And even though they can hurt each other, a lot of what they do with each other when they're playing is far more biting than they can do with you. And they need to learn the difference. So I will allow some of that on my terms when I say so with it stopping when I say to. If you can't do that, you're better off zero. Not at all. Zero tolerance policy on it. Next, don't get angry. Don't get angry. The dog will know you're angry, but it won't know why. Again, no correction. No correction absent a connection. But even when you're angry. Now, we're humans. We get angry. Dogs get angry. It happens. But you don't let it take over what you're doing. Because again, even if you sound calm, the dog knows you're pissed. The dog knows you're pissed. Walk in a room with a dog, as long as it's awake and it sees you when you walk in when you're pissed off. And just look at the dog. First thing you see the dog look around like, well, what did I do? You know, if I'm ever mad about something, I walk in a room and I see one of my dogs do that, and especially when I had nothing to do with it, I said, not you, buddy, you're good. Come here, bud. Also, I'm so angry because the dog's cool. That dog knows you're angry. So if you get angry at the dog during training, that dog, you might as well be a drill sergeant yelling at the dog, even though you're not raising your voice. That dog knows you're angry. It knows your respiration change. It knows the emotion of anger It can see anger. It can smell anger. It can hear anger. So I might be really angry with you, but if I say, hey, you know, we should do a little bit better on that, and uh, can you fix this for me if you work for me, let's say. And I leave, and somebody says, well, is Jack angry? Yeah, he's a little irritated. He's not angry. If I do that with a dog, the dog goes, he's pissed. However dogs think of that word, he's pissed. I screwed up. So I guess maybe... Don't get angry is ridiculous and impossible. Control your anger. Mitigate your anger and let go of it as soon as possible. Especially once the dog has given you what you've asked for. Then you should be happy. The funny thing about happy, happy is an anger eraser. It's hard. You can't really be angry and happy at the same time. right? You're one or the other. So the dog is someone supposed to do, but when you made the correction with the connection, the dog responded, be happy about that. You'll stop being angry about the error. It's a dog. People aren't perfect, so dogs are not going to be perfect. Let go of the anger. Next, stop talking to your dog in a baby voice. Most of the time, anyway. In general, you're better off talking to your dog like you talk to a friend, because that's what your dog is. The dog's not a baby. Now, they do recognize tone. Okay? So it's funny, like, the other night we were sitting out, Dorothy and I, the night I got back from Tennessee, a Sunday evening, and I was drinking a Bloody Mary, and Dorothy was having a vodka tonic, and we're sitting in our chairs. And I look over, and there's Charlie in his super dog pose, where he's laying on the porch. And he's, he's, on, he's on his back, flat out. He looks like he's dead, 
but one arm in and one arm's out like when Superman flies, and his two back legs are just up in the air, and his ass is pointing towards us. And I just said, so watch that dog, honey. So she looks over at him, and I go, oh, I love my Charlie. And his tail just starts. He doesn't move, but his tail just starts wagging, right? He doesn't have the vocabulary for that. He hears the inflection in the voice. But you don't, you'll never see me going, oh, Charlie, be there with me. It's just nonsense. It's nonsense. There's a place for inflection and tone, and I'm not going to tell people how to live. And if there's certain things your dog does that you want to baby goo talk to him, go ahead. But do not make this standard practice. That dog needs you to be assertive, and you can't be assertive when you're like, okay, let's go out for walkies, baby bubby. No, hey, let's go for a walk. The dog wants Yoda. Yoda knows his shit. Yoda's an immortal elf. You got to be that for your dog. There's an old saying. Be the person your dog believes that you are. Well, be that person when you're talking to your dog, both with words and with actions and signals and deeds. Right? Next, right in that line, a command is a command. It is not a request. Now, it's funny. Sometimes we'll be sitting around, and back before we got rid of the birds, maybe the geese are somewhere I don't want them, like up on the porch crapping all over it. And I'll look over at Charlie and I'll say, hey, Charlie, would you, would you go move those geese for me? And he'll, okay. And he goes and he moves them. He'll say, well, didn't you just make a request? Yeah, because I've got the command down and done. And because I'm not asking him to do something at that moment that he doesn't want to do. He's like, oh, I get to chase the geese. All I have to do is stay in the limits and not bite anybody, and I get to go do what I want to do. So I'm going to go do that because I was asked to do it. And I wasn't, see, when I say that, that's, it's like theatrical. What I'm really doing is saying, hey, you know what? They're really not supposed to be, dude. You have permission to go do what you want to do. So he'll go do it. But if he is being aggressive, I'm not going to say, Charlie, would you stop? When I was working with him as a pup and I wanted him to learn how to sit, I would say, sit. Not, well, oh, come on now, sit. And when I said sit, Remember I said no correction absent a connection? We have a connection. The connection is the elf said sit. You bet your ass you're going to sit. So the correction is immediate firm pressure on the ass, pressure on the chest so you don't lay down. Sit. Not sit. No, it is a command. And it goes right back to that earlier rule, expect the dog to do what you want the dog to do. Expect proper behavior in yourself. And what I mean not my, for you to do, I guess that's good too. But what I mean is within yourself. Your emotion should be, when I tell this dog he's going to sit. So that when it doesn't sit, it's actually surprising to you. Hey, he didn't sit. I'm going to fix that shit. Commands are not requests. And a dog needs Yoda. A dog needs the command. The dog just doesn't need it to perform well. The dog needs it to be happy. The dog wants you to be in charge. Next, except some breeds have some intrinsic character, uh, characteristics, and those are on some level a limitation. That doesn't mean we can't get past some of them, but it does mean it's going to present challenges, and in some instances, there's a limit to how far you can go. So here's what I mean by this. I did the DNA test on Lucy, our, um, our husky mix. We thought she was Shepherd or maybe Australian Kelpie. I mean... Weird-looking dog when you don't know what you're looking at. We get it back, and she's a husky mixed with Pitbull and Dalmatian. 
She's mostly, it's like 60% husky. And you go, oh, yeah, she's a husky with short hair. You look at her and go, she looks like a husky with short hair and dark colored instead of light colored. And then the fact that, you know, when she wants something, she'll come to you and do that stuff. Okay, you can train some of that back, but that dog makes that sound. That's genetically in that dog. You're no more going to 100% prevent that dog from making that vocalization at you when it wants something, then you're going to train it to not shed. You can brush the hell out of it so it sheds less. You can train the hell out of it so it borrow roars less. But in the end, it's going to shed. It's going to borrow roar because it's a husky. That's what they do. So she's not going to be a dog. That when I bring birds back on the property, that I'm going to be able to train to move birds and trust her not to hurt them. My dog, Charlie, might train her to do that. We will see. And we'll get to that in a bit. But she's not going to be that trustworthy dog 90%. There's a 10% chance that maybe. I don't want to fight that battle. I'll settle for the birds are out there and she doesn't kill them. And that took some work, but we got there together with consistent training. And people say, well, uh, but Jack, your, your other dog that you do trust is a pit bull. Okay, pit bulls are not generally known for killing birds. They do kill furry animals like rabbits, but they're really not a bird dog. And he's got bird dog in him. But what do bird dogs generally do? Well, this particular breed is a pointer. Pointers generally don't catch birds. What do they do? They stop and identify where the bird is. So even though there was some fight with that because the pit bull is naturally aggressive, and the pointer has a natural inclination to go after birds, I was able to train through those intrinsic characteristics because we're offsetting ones, like a nature of a pointer. It would have been much harder probably if, let's say, the dog was half pit bull and half Labrador retriever. Labradors can be trained to point, but they're a little bit more of a flushing dog. They're more of a retriever, so they go get stuff, including stuff that ain't dead yet. And if it had been something like a hound breed, like let's say a red bone cross with a pit bull, that would have been even more difficult. And I would have to make a decision. How much do I want to invest in trying to overcome this intrinsic characteristic? So in certain breeds, accept that intrinsic limitation. Work around it and train within your ability and the dog's ability to learn. Next, that's what I just talked about. Dogs train each other. And that can be good and it can be bad. Let's talk about one way this has happened. I train Charlie that there is a right way and a wrong way for you to come on my property. In the middle of the night, climbing over my fence is the wrong way. You are now the enemy and you are to be eliminated. I am not kidding. It is not a bluff. It is not a bark. It is not a nip. You are in deep, freaking Tasmanian devil pit bull shit if you climb my fence in the middle of the night or you break open my window and, my, break my window and stick your arm in and try to open the door. You are going to lose flesh and bone. I do not make any apologies for that because your five-year-old can come over here and climb on him like a horsey right now, and he will buck them off like a bull, turn around, and lick their face. Those two things are separate. You're supposed to be here. You're not. Now, when we got Lucy, like I said, she was very beta. She was afraid of people she didn't know. She would run away. I worked with her. I got her out of her shell, but I thought there's no reason really for me to train this dog to be aggressive because it's not in her. I mistook 
her limitations. She didn't really have. Now, it started to make sense when we got the, uh, the fact that she has Pitbull in her, that she had more courage in her, just needed time to come out. But one day, I hear Lucy, rah, 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 just losing her shit at the front gate. There's an Amazon delivery person out there trying to figure out whether they should just put it the hell down, call the number at the sign that says not to come in, uh, either one's flying, or open the gate and see if the dog will bite. Fortunately, this Amazon person was smarter you know, than you would expect and just put the package down and walked away. I, like, I thought Charlie was out. Why isn't he losing his shit? And I look, and this friggin' dog of mine, who normally does flip his shit when anybody's at that gate, is standing about 50 feet back from where Lucy is, very aloof, but paying attention and watching, and watching her lose her shit. Basically, like, something goes wrong, I got her, got her back, she's got this. This is not an embellishment, this is not an exaggeration, this is exactly what's going on. Who trained her to do that? He did. When she started demonstrating aggression... As an alpha, as the pack leader, he said, okay, you're doing this, I don't have to. I'll just stand back here in case you need me. Who trained him to do that? I didn't. There's the intrinsic characteristics. So these two dogs work together now. She says, hey, don't come in. He says, you know, she's kind of serious and I mean it. That's good. Where is it bad? It's bad if the one dog has poor behavior. You really want to break any of the truly poor behaviors in one dog before you bring a second dog into your home. This is why I'm very opposed to getting two dogs at one time, especially if they're not both pups. If they're both young pups, it's like raising twins. It's going to be more work, but it's doable. If you have a one-year-old psycho dog that hasn't learned to control itself yet, and you bring a pup in, that psycho dog is going to train the pup to be a psycho pup. Right, So I kind of like to get the major puppy portion of my dog's life done before a second dog comes. So that's between two and three years of age before I'm bringing a second dog in. Then the best way to use the trained dog to train the untrained dog is demonstration. So if I want Lucy to sit, I'll call Charlie over and tell him to sit right in front of her. Then I'll tell her to sit and expect that she does it, and it'll go faster. However, if I'm working with her beyond that, And I'm trying to teach her, fetch, drop a ball, whatever, lay down so I can check your feet, lay on your back so I can check your stomach to see if you got burrs in it, whatever it is. The dogs are jealous. If I'm working with her and she's not immediately compliant, the other dogs come insert themselves. Now I've lost control of the training. So the other side of that is not just bad behavior, but interference. So it really makes a lot of sense when you're working with a new dog Beyond the very most basic things. As soon as the other dog becomes a nuisance, they're given the command to go sit over somewhere else, lay down and stay, or put up. So that you can have the time to work with the new dog. Next, I wanted to make this as easy as possible for you. So I wanted to sum up what your job as a dog owner and trainer is in six words or less. And six words is all I need. Make success easy and failure difficult. That's your real job. Put the dog in a position where it's easy to do what you want and difficult to do what you don't want. Potty training with a crate is a great way to explain this. So with a pup, how do you house train a dog? Never let it have a chance to piss and shit in the house. You put the dog in a crate when you're not watching the dog. 
If you are watching the dog and it makes any signs like it's going to pee or poop, you pick it up and put it outside. When it poos and peeps outside, you pet it and tell it it's good. When it poos and peeps in, pees inside, eh, when they're a pup, you don't get upset. You don't get mad. It happens. You don't get any more mad at your dog that peed on the floor when it's a pup than when your kid pees in its pants when it's a baby in a diaper. It doesn't, it doesn't have control yet. So we want to eliminate the potential for error. So the dog goes out, the dog does business, the dog comes inside, he gets to play and walk around a while, he gets some affection. When we can't watch the dog, he goes in the crate. When the dog comes out of the crate, his little feet never touch the floor, straight outside to poop and pee. You do this for a couple weeks, dog's house broken. Why? I don't know how to pee in the house. I don't know how to poo in this. I never had an opportunity to do so. The couple times I did, I was picked up and taken outside. That's where I'm supposed to go. The elf says so. He's in charge or she's in charge. So that's just the way it is, and the house is not for pooing and peeing in. Peeing in. Why did it work? Because it was difficult for the dog to fail. And it was easy for the dog to succeed. You put them in long enough that they start to feel the need to go, The last time they went, they peed in it. They had to lay in it. They didn't like that. Then they got a bath. They don't like that. So when I'm in here, I really don't want to go. And when I come out, I go outside and I pee. How is the dog going to fail? Very difficult. How is the dog going to succeed? Pretty easy. It has to pee at peace. Not much things are easier than peeing when you have to pee, right? And with age and an understanding, the dog develops control not to pee in the house. And you can do this with all things. Take it to a ball. Throw the ball. If the dog is the kind of dog that tracks with that right away and wants to fetch, most dogs will get the ball and they bring it back. Then what happens? You want the ball? I don't. If, but, Elf, if I give you the ball, I won't have a ball anymore. Now, once that dog's trained, you should be able to say drop it and they drop it. My dog, Max, loves to play with his balls and his frisbees. And if he's dragging one around, he'll get to the door of the house, and I'll say, Max, that doesn't go in the house. You know that. He'll drop it. Right? But as a pup, like, oh, I got a ball. The elf wants the ball, but I want the ball. How can I? You have two balls. You train sit first. Dog has the ball. You train it to sit. He'll sit. Show him the other ball. Drop it. When he drops it, Use the ball to distract him. Pick the other ball up. Put the first ball away. Pat him. Good boy. Throw it for him. It's easy to succeed. It's difficult to fail. The dog wants to keep the ball, but he also wants the other ball. The dog doesn't mind sitting, so that was easy because we already learned that. And just transfer that mindset to everything you want the dog to do. Make it easy to succeed and difficult for the dog to fail, and you'll have a lot of good results, as crazy as that sounds. Um, next, yes, old dogs can learn tri new tricks, and they usually want to. But you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It is absolutely the case that it can be more difficult to train a five-year-old dog that was never trained than it is to train a puppy. But that's usually the basics. When I got Max, he was 18 months old. Didn't know sit, didn't know stay, didn't know come. Base didn't know heel, didn't know anything. Lucy was the same way. We estimate she was 18 months to two years of age. We really don't know, but that's what the vet thinks. No discipline whatsoever. Both of them took about three weeks. All the basic commands are down. All the basic commands are down. Then training's the same. 
All you got to do is get the dog in the mindset of the elf is in charge, the elf wants these things. When I hear and see things I don't understand, the elf's asking for something that, that I don't know how to do yet. The elf doesn't get mad and use its awesome power to hurt me. It just keeps asking me. So what I got to do is figure out what the elf wants. And most dogs actually want to please you. And it's not so much teaching them how to do what you want, but getting them to understand what it is that you want them to do or not to do. Once they know this is what I'm being asked to do or not do, they generally, not always, everybody gets emotional, including canines. Everybody gets excited, including canines. Sometimes people just don't want to do what you ask them to do, and sometimes dogs don't want you to don't want to do what you ask them to do. I'll deal with this with Charlie. He'll get up on the couch and go to sleep. Come out in the morning, he's on the couch. We actually put it's okay. We don't mind him on the couch. He has a blanket. He he will go where the blanket is, so we don't have hair on the couch. He likes it up there. I don't have a problem with it. If you do, don't ever let him get up there. That's another rule unwritten here. Never let a dog do what you don't want it to do without correction. All right, if you're going to not let the dog on the couch ever, don't let the dog on the couch ever. He goes up there. Come out in the morning and go, all right, buddy, time to go out. Get down. He's looking at me right now like, what do you want, man? Um, and what he'll do is he's like a teenager. <sighs> I don't want to do this. <sighs> the elf says, I got to get up. And he'll look at you like, do you mean it? He go, come on, dude, get down. And the front paws come off. And then the butt stands up. He's a downward dog stretch taking his time. And finally I'll say, do you want me to get the spray bottle? And out he goes. I don't even have to show it to him. Just have to ask him, do you want me to get the spray bottle? Right? Well, this is because he knows what I want, but he's pushing it just like a kid. How much can I get away with? Because he's tired in the morning. So a lot of times when you're dealing with looks, what looks like abstinent, obstinance in a dog, it's just a simple matter of I really don't want to do this right now. And you need to remind the dog that, hey, I'm the elf. I'm in charge. I'm Yoda. Your training is continuing, young Padawan. Let's go. And, and they'll give you what you want. And then if they don't, we use correction. And physical correction by a loving dog owner absolutely can be uncomfortable, but it should not be painful with very few exceptions. I am a fan of shock collars. It does hurt. I use it for the most extreme measures of training. I use it very limited. The dog that's laying next to me right now, Charlie, has been actually shocked three times in his existence and once was to train him not to attack a chainsaw because that will hurt a lot more. But in general, what I use for correction It's uncomfortable, but not painful. And many times it's not even uncomfortable. It's the way that it's done makes it different. Here's what I mean. I absolutely will, if the dog does something that's really out of character, like snap at it something, I'll, I'll, I'll hit him. And I'll hit him like that. Now, that will have an immediate reaction. The dog's like, oh shit, Yoda's pissed. I don't know, he might levitate me into the swamp or some shit. I better pay attention. However, that dog will come up to me when he's happy, and I'll be like, <laughs> on his side, right? Hitting him harder, because we're playing. It doesn't hurt him. Remember I said they understand your energy? This contact that's not painful is corrective. 
These two fingers at the side of your neck. Right, hey, pay attention to me now. The two fingers with the thumb that pinch a little bit. That, I mean, the dog, they can get into these mock fights with each other, and they do it for hours. They're pinching far harder, but that pinch is a pack leader. That's the alpha dog using a bite. And it's the way that it's done, not the force that's used. The way that it's done. Hey, shit. He's telling me not to do this. I'll use a spray bottle. Spray bottle is one of the most universal discipline tools among animals that there are. I use it on my cats. I use it on dogs. I use it on friggin' birds. Not chickens, but uh, if you ever work with like cockatiels and stuff like that, spray bottle. And they'll understand. You just hold the spray Cockatiel. You put that thing up on her head with her being aggressive. You just pick the water bottle up and show it to them. All of a sudden, you see it go down. Serious as a heart attack. So, use a spray bottle. This is not painful, but it's uncomfortable. If you have a dog that doesn't really respond to the spray bottle, put a couple drops of vinegar in it. They don't like the smell. Quick spray to the face, back off. I said no. I meant no. It was a command. It wasn't a request. This is Yoda speaking. Right? I have this magical power to make water come out of my hands whenever I'm holding this weird thing. You need to pay attention. Right? And don't overthink how smart dogs are. For God's sake, you know the nozzles on the end of a hose? I can show that to him. And he knows he's going to get sprayed with it. Except there's no hose. He doesn't understand a hose has to be hooked up to it. Right? So dogs aren't as smart as we think they are, but in some ways they're smarter. We just need to understand how they're smart so we can work together with them. But your physical correction should not be painful. When I see somebody beating a dog, they're in danger of getting their ass beat by me. Because it doesn't work. And again, when we use the correction and a dog acknowledges the correction... Stop, and as long as it submits to the proper behavior, we're done. Because if I'm telling you to sit and you don't sit, you might get popped on a butt. But again, this is lighter than... I'm going to do this right now so you can probably hear it. Oh, good boy. Yeah. Oh. Right? He's stretching out, right? Like, he's a big built dog. That little pop on the butt is far less, but it's... It's how it's done. It's the inflection of the voice. It's the dog sensing your energy. I'm displeased. Sit. I meant it. So that's what I mean by that. You can use that physical correction without it being painful. Next, don't shame a dog. It's pointless and stupid and the dog doesn't get it. These are these people that have pictures of the dog and the dog looks like it's about to die. It's so shame because it ate a pillow or whatever. Again, When we use, so we're setting the dog up then for a picture. The connection to the correction is gone. And if you're like, I'll tell you right now, you probably shouldn't do it because it's mean. Let's say your dog didn't do anything at all, did nothing wrong. And you walk in, a dog's sitting there looking at you, you go, What did you do? That dog is going to like give you the dog shame look, like, Oh, shit, I'm submitting. I don't know why. I don't know what I did. I, I, I don't think I ate the garbage today. I, I don't think I chased the cat. I don't think I ate a pillow. But I'm going to sulk because, uh, shit, he's mad. Maybe he's just mad because the cat bit him and he thinks I did it. I don't know. But I'm gonna, But the, the dog doesn't know why. Right? It, it's, it's responding with that shameful look. That's not really shame. Oh, he's so ashamed of himself. No, it's not. That's cowering. That's submission. That means you have a good dog. That's what it means. 
that that dog understands that you're upset and is saying, I am complying with your dominance. But it has no idea what's really going on. Don't do it. It's pointless and stupid, and it upsets the dog. And it doesn't get you what you want. Above all, my golden rule with dogs, don't harm your relationship and trust with your dog. Everything I've described as corrective action is action that dogs will do to each other without getting in a fight. There's no real pain. The dominance is, is just there. It's not really asserted. It's done with love and compassion. It's done with respect. And that dog knows that. And that breeds trust. There's people that think I'm over the top when I say, like, if you broke in my house and killed my dog, you're dead. And there's people that think it's a joke. Or they're thinking, like, it's just Jack being emotional. No, you're done. You break in my house and kill my dog. If, if, you, if they police don't get you first, and you're not wanted for, like, a murder somewhere else of a person where they put you in jail for life, you're going to get buried by an excavator. Because my dog didn't ask you to break in my house. My dog's my family. As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of like you killed my wife or my son. You took a life from me. You took something from my family. I don't expect everybody to feel this way, but you want to know why I'm a dog person. With everything I taught you about dogs today, don't you think that dog knows that? Will he articulate it that way if you give the dog the power to speak? No. But what the dog knows is you can trust me. You can trust me. And I trust you, and I won't let anything happen to you if I can help it. They understand that. And, and again, if you gave them the ability to speak, they would use different words. But they get that. And that is that relationship, and that relationship is sacred. And when you go and flip your shit on a dog like you're talking to a friend you're having an argument with, and a dog just hears, blah, 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 and has no idea what you're upset about. What's funny, it's like the dog's laying here and I do that, it doesn't even move. He doesn't move. He knows I'm not doing it to him. If I was doing it to him, he'd be looking at me like, what the, what the hell? What's wrong with you? When we get angry, when we use pain, especially inappropriately, when we get tense, when we do any of these things, when we respond with aggression or we should respond with compassion with an animal, we break that trust. And that includes sometimes we need to respond with cor correction and some level of assertiveness and aggression. He trusts us or she trusts us for that too. They need us to be that dominant force in their lives for their own happiness because they don't know how to function without us. They really don't. Dogs do go feral, and they do get by, but I've never seen a group of dogs that are feral that seem happy. I've seen cats that are feral that seem happy. Feral dogs always seem like there's something missing in their lives, and that something is us, because over 10,000 years ago, we found certain wild canines that had a predisposition to bond with us And for thousands of generations, they've lived at our side. And they've evolved with us. If you go back to before human beings took the dog into the home and made the dog part of the family unit, there's no dogs, there's no wild canines that are anything like the dogs we have today. And it's not just selective breeding and breed. You get the closest thing to what's out there. And it's dramatically different in personality and psychology. And not just because they grow up with us. Like I said, because it's there. If we raise the wild canine 
The same way we raise the domestic canine. They don't behave the same way. They've become dependent on us because we as a species have evolved and co-evolved with them. They need us as much as the fungus needs the rotting piece of wood. We exist together. So you don't break that trust. If you don't break that trust, and you put the time and the commitment in that the dog deserves, because no one asked you to take that dog into your home. You chose. The dog didn't ask. The dog was waiting for someone to be his human or her human. So do a good job. Follow these rules. Know your limitations. Expect that the animal will perform. And again, remember, the easiest way to understand this, make success for the dog easy and failure difficult. And you'll have a great relationship with your dog and other dogs. As you do this over time, you'll become that person to go, they just have a way with dogs. No, you just understand the canine mind. With that, hey, did you like today's show? I, I hope so. Um, it's one that I've been kicking around different aspects of for uh, quite a few weeks now. I was happy to get it out to you. If you want to support us so that we're always here to provide content like that for you, consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, where you can find all of our reviews on Amazon. You can check out the Amazon deals of the day, anything and everything. And remember, if it's there, I recommend it. I use it. It's in my life, and I've tested it. And if it doesn't pass that muster, it doesn't get on my site. It doesn't go to tspaz.com. Today I have something for you that many of you that have been around for a while will be familiar with uh, when it comes to small batch mead making. Uh, it is my combination of two yeasts that everybody says I'm wrong about, and I'm not wrong, and it does what I say it does. And today I get to tell you that I've actually figured out why it does what I say it does, and that is Red Star Premier Cuvée Yeast cobbled up with Red Star Premier Blanc. Now, those of you that heard me say this in the past, did he say Premier Blanc? I did because they changed it. There was Pasteur Blanc, and there was Pasteur Champagne. And this confused people. So Red Star changed the name uh, of Pasteur Blanc to Premier Blanc to make a better um, differential between the two is what I think they did. I contacted Red Star, and Premier Blanc is the yeast that I've been recommending for three years now to go along with Cuvée. Now, most people say you pitch a single variety of yeast, And if you pitch two, one dominates the other. And eh, not so much. So long ago, I started making small batch, one-gallon mead uh, batches. And I started pitching these two together. I just did it one day. Like, hmm, I wonder what happens if you put the two in together. Boom, let me see. Explosive fermentation. Very quick finish. Love what it did for the meat. And I always just said, you know, it's a happy accident. I don't really care why. But my, my gut is that... One does something better than the other, and together they're more than the sum of their parts. And I thought, you know what, Jack? You, you, you've been doing this for three years. Why don't you get off your ass and do a little research and find out what's going on? So th this makes perf perfect sense. They're both actually quite fast fermenters. But Cuvée is a quicker fermenter than Blanc. It, it's a faster uh, fermenting yeast. But it tops out at 15%, which means that's as far as it can go. At, at 15%, and uh, the yeast die. It's done, it shuts down. The Blanc's a little bit slower, but it's also qu uh, quick. It brings out the fruity esters, so it, it, it gets all the alcohol it can without stripping the flavor. Both of them do that, so they have that in combination. But it can go to 18%, but it's a little bit slower in its fermentation. Now, this is the important thing to understand. A yeast that can get to 15% 
will probably get to 12% faster than it gets from 12% to 15%. It's reaching its limits of what it can do, so it slows down. So the cuvee gets off to a much faster start than the Blanc, but as the cuvee begins to reach its tolerance point, the Blanc takes over and finishes the race. Okay? Now, here's where the magic comes in, where this is just a dumb luck selection that turned into something really great. The limit to what the Blanc can do is 18% alcohol, which means when you get up to about 13% and the cuvee's really slowing down, the Blanc is still in its stride and can take it right across 15%, 16%, where then it's going to be again to slow down and get its last little bit. Well, how do I make my meat? What's my standard formula? Three pounds of honey to the gallon. And what does that give you? There's always variances, but in general, it gives you a 15% meat. Three pounds of honey to the gallon gives you 15%. What else do I usually do? Most of my meats have a fruit adjunct. Most of them are, 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 are melamals. I'm doing something like persimmon or elderberry or blueberry or blackberry. There's some sugar contribution there. So most of my meats are like 15.5% to 16.5%. The cuvee can't get there alone, but it gets close to being done faster, and the Blanc can take it the rest of the way. And that's why this has worked so well for me. And even when I do something like Three Flowers Blend, the herbs aren't giving much of a sugar contribution, but you still have that little kick to get from that 14 to that 15 to 15.1, whatever it is in the end. So... My gut as to why these worked is exactly why they worked all along. Now I have the scientific explanation as to why, and maybe I'll stop getting beat up by mead makers that say I'm wrong, even though my mead is pretty awesome. I think your mead can be awesome too. Check out this yeast combination the next time you're making, especially, you know, a, you know if you're making a, a, a mead that's going to be 7 8%, either one's fine. You're going to make a mead that's going to be, you know, up there. You're going to make some of that Viking mead. Uh, give my combination a try. I think you'll like it. And uh, you can find the article and all the other cool stuff at T-Spaz by going there. Uh, next up, our song of the day. So, because the week before I left for a full week, I did a rewind because everything went to hell on me. Uh, and I needed to to get through that week. I threw things off for John Adam. So he had a week of sticks planned. I'm going to start that week on Monday next week so we have a full week of sticks. So I called an audible today. And I have a song for you by one of my favorite singers and songwriters, Jimmy Buffett. The song is When the Coast is Clear. And there's nobody to tell you what a song's about like the author. So I'll read from Jimmy Buffett himself what this song is all about. Jimmy says, I grew up on the Alabama Gulf Coast. And it has been a source of a lot of my music. I always like to go home after school is back in session. The crowds have left the beaches. The amusement parks are closed. And one and straw covers the artificial turf of the miniature golf course. The tidal pools are once again the domain of the shorebirds, and the water changes its darker green, signaling the approach of winter. This is the first song that Mac McAnally and I wrote together, and I think it paints the image of the way I like to see it. Painting with words can be as much fun as painting with oils. I really resonate with that because I do see myself as an artist, but I cannot paint or draw. So I've always painted with words, whether the words of a podcast or the words of a songwriter or the words of a poet. So I kind of have a groove there. I also like, I've had this experience, like many of you know, one of my favorite places in the world is Florida. And I grew up in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida on the Atlantic coast. I spent a lot of time on the Gulf Coast around Fort Myers and Sanibel Island. 
Sanibel Island is one of my favorite places, and it became one of my wife's favorite places after I started to get her to go there. And one year we were there, and it literally is this song. We were there for Memorial Day and a couple days after. And, of course, Memorial Day is the last day before kids go back to school. So we had the big Memorial Day weekend crowd, and then the coast was clear. And I mean literally clear, like the bar at the hotel wasn't open. That's how few people were there. We were the only people there. And the beach had been covered with people. You could look up and down and like see not just a person or two, like no one. And it got a little stormy, but not enough to ruin it. A little cloudy, but not enough to ruin it. The waves got a little rougher. My wife and I were able to walk that beach as though we were the only people in the world. That's what this song's about. Let me give you uh, the lyrics to it. They're closing down the hangout. The air is turning cool. They're shutting off the super slide. The kids are back in school. The tourist traps are empty. Vacancy abounds, almost like it used to be before the circus came to town. That's when it always happens, same time every year. I come down to talk to me when the coast is clear. Hey, Mr. Other Me, it's been a long time. We hardly get to have these chats. That in itself's a crime. So tell me all your troubles. I'll surely tell you mine. We'll laugh and smoke and cuss and joke and have a glass of wine. This is the experience many of us need. I talked about the, the ticking of time and the getting ahead and, and what have you at the beginning of today and building your independence and, and what have you. But the other thing is every once in a while you need to go talk to yourself. That's what this song is about, about having a meeting with yourself. That other you who is calm, who'd be that perfect dog trainer like we talked about today, who still has all the dreams, who hasn't been beaten down by life, and who knows how to have fun and relax. So every once in a while, whether it's an abandoned coast or a walk in the woods, or just simply a part of the park full of people that no one goes to, take a time, have that conversation with your other me, and the longer it's been, the more of a crime it is, and the more you need to do it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. They're closing down the hangout. The air is turning cool. Shutting off the super slide. The kids are back in school. The tourist traps are empty. They can see about almost like it used to be before the circus came to town. That's when it always happens, the same time every year. I come down to talk to me. When the coast is clear Hello, Mr. Other Me It's been a long, long time We hardly get to have these chats That in itself's a crime Tell me all your trouble I'll surely tell you mine 